Genius of Creation, Chapter 10, Continued The Cherubim Cherubim is a plural word that conveys the idea of God manifestation. The singular word cherub does not denote a plump, naked baby with wings, as is so popular in Christianity. The cherubim are symbolic figures representing the angels as God's ministers, Hebrews 1 verse 14. The word cherub probably means to bless, praise or adore, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, and we have every reason to praise him. Luke gives an illustration of this in his Gospel when he writes of angels appearing to shepherds outside Bethlehem to announce Jesus' birth. There Luke describes a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Luke 2 verse 13 and 14 how typical of the wonderful character of Yahweh Elohim that, as Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, their last memory of what had been lost was a vision of the power and glory of God in the cherubim to give them hope that one day all that had been lost would be regained. They saw the Elohim in a way that they had not seen them before. Mingled with their fear, there was hope. As the Lord said to the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Luke 20, verse 35 and 36. This is because the way, a recurring theme in Scripture, was being preserved by the cherubim. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, in John 14, verse 6. The angels still keep the way so that the faithful can be born of spirit and live forever at the Lord's coming again. These cherubim were placed at the east gate of the garden. When the first human pair left the garden, the late sun was behind them in the west. They faced the darkness of life ahead, but with dawn would come the brightness of a new day and hope renewed. The Hebrew word for placed is shaken, meaning to dwell. Later Moses is told to make me a tabernacle that I may dwell, the Hebrew word shaken, among them. Exodus 25 verse 8. This idea led to the later use of the word shekanah, a non-biblical word except perhaps in the name shekaniah. For the glory in dwelling between the golden cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of the tabernacle where Israel worshipped. The word shaken conveys the idea of dwelling close or near. Hence God says to Moses, I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, 
from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Exodus 25, verse 22. Much later, Asaph penned a psalm that commenced with the words, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Psalm 80, verse 1. And another psalm, which takes us into the future kingdom of God, starts, The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Psalm 99 verse 1 and Isaiah 37 verse 16. I'm reminded of the words of Robert Roberts from page 154 of his book Lord of Moses. The erection of the tabernacle was an intimation of his willingness to be approached by man for mercy, but not at the sacrifice of his holiness or his authority or his majesty. That is why John Thomas describes the flaming sword as a sword of destruction. As the psalmist sang, Who maketh his angel spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. Psalm 104 verse 4 and Hebrews 1 verse 7. We must be careful in our approach that it is in the right spirit and exactly as he has stipulated. Chapter 4 of Genesis will illustrate the point. The Cherubim in Ezekiel Another mention of the word Cherubim occurs in Ezekiel chapter 10. It is obvious from the description given that the vision described in Ezekiel chapter 1 is also of the Cherubim. This is a fascinating vision of the cherubim, and above them God's throne. But it is not within the compass of this book to go into detail here. Suffice it to say that it is a vision of the glorious manifestation of the Father in a multitude of the heavenly host, in anticipation of the time when the glory of God shall be revealed, and all flesh, that is, of Israel and of the saints, shall see it together. Isaiah 40 verse 5 Ezekiel saw the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of Elohim. Fire is once again associated with the cherubim, for their work is one of judgment upon the wicked. In the eventual fulfilment of Ezekiel's vision of the cherubim, it will represent not the angelic host, but the newly glorified saints of whom it is said, Let the saints be joyful in glory, let them sing aloud upon their beds, let the high praises of God be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand, the powerful word of God 
Hebrews 4, verse 12 to 13, to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishment upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. This honour have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Psalm 149, verses 5 to 9. Ezekiel concludes his description of the cherubim by explaining, And I saw as the colour of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward. I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard the voice of one that spake. This from Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 27 to 28. Ezekiel was to see this glory leave the temple because of Judah's wickedness. But it was to return again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when, as John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And they did see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. This from John 1, verse 14, and Matthew 17, verses 1 to 9. The day of our Lord's reappearing is at hand, and his glory shall be seen again on earth, as it is written in the second of Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 8 to 19. And you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. The Work of the Cherubim In an aside, Isaiah also mentions seeing the glory of the Lord, the Hebrew Yahweh, see the Companion Bible Appendix 32, sitting upon a throne. Above it stood the seraphim. The final im makes the word a plural. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 4. The seraphim are mentioned again in connection with the throne of glory in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 to 9. 
The description of the cherubim and the seraphim is almost identical for both represent the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrected immortal saints ruling in glory. The cherubim reveal Christ and the saints pouring out the judgment written. The seraphim reveal Christ and the saints ruling over a world at peace after pouring out the judgment. In that day the Lord Jesus, having been given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh, every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2 verse 8 to 11. We can understand the expression, the chariot of the cherubim, in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 18, when we realise that in the future we are to be a vehicle for the Spirit, as is described in Psalm 18, which foreshadows darkness covering Jerusalem at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Psalm 18 reads, in part, the sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. They went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. For three hours, Luke 23, verse 44. And he rode upon a cherub, and did fly upon the wings of the Spirit, the King James Version, wind. The Hebrew word is ruach. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Our calling is not to a humdrum existence. It is an extremely elevated and lofty calling to share in the glory of God, a glory that shines brighter by far than that which shines from the sun, galaxies, and constellations of the universe. The Apostle Peter recorded that we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard, when we were with him in the holy mount. The second of Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, and Matthew 17, verse 5. In a sense, with our imagination stirred by the visions of the word, we also become eyewitnesses of his majesty. Therefore, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? The second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, verse 11. Sin changed the world. Now we're waiting for it to be changed again.
when the hope of Israel is fulfilled at our Lord's coming. Death and the way of reconciliation. I have earlier written that the way is a recurring theme in Scripture. Even in this first book of the Bible, Genesis, men's corruption of the way soon resulted in the most severe but necessary judgment, for it is written, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Genesis 6, verse 12 and 13. Subsequently, God made a new beginning with Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews and Arabs, saying, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. This in Genesis 18, verse 19. So there are two ways, the way of sinners and the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly shall perish, we read in Psalm 1, verse 1 and 6. We choose for ourselves which way we will take, and therefore we choose for ourselves whether our future will be death or life. God is not to be blamed for our choice. Our best choice would be to echo the prayer of the psalmist. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Psalm 27, verse 11. Because David was taught God's ways, he could also say, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And this is referred to in Acts 2 verse 28. How different the result of false teachers of the word, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of which have forsaken the right way, and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, preaching error for money. Numbers 22, verse 5 to 7. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end of them is worse than the beginning. For it had been better with them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. In, from the second epistle of Peter and chapter 2. Hope of the grace of God Both Adam and Eve left the garden to very gradually age and die. Adam at 930 years, 
It could not be possible for Eve, the mother of all living, in a dying state to give birth to undying children. Therefore we are all dying. We have the sentence of death in ourselves, Paul says in the second of Corinthians 1 verse 9. As we have mentioned before, Scripture says, as in Adam all die. Our situation is not hopeless, however, for the passage continues, Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 How can this be? Yes, by one man, that is by Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. But Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12 and 15, but not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Naturally, there are conditions to such a gift from God that involves a change to a spiritual nature that is immortal. And whilst it would be no good being immortal in this world of unceasing pain and wickedness, it will be an altogether different thing to be immortal in a world of continual joy and sinlessness, a state that Isaiah describes as everlasting joy in Isaiah 61 verse 7. Therefore Paul says, We groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our body, in Romans 8 verse 23. So, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb came because of his perfect obedience to his Father's will. In explaining this, Peter says in Acts 2 verse 24, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It would not be just to leave a sinless man in the grave, and God is just. But more than this, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous, says Paul in Romans 5 verse 19. Our Lord, by his death, condemned sin. Where did he condemn sin? In the flesh, where sin has its hold over us. Romans 8 verse 3 By association with him in baptism and a new manner of life in which he is the template for our behaviour. We have forgiveness of sins when they are confessed. Romans 6 verses 3 to 12 and the first of John chapter 2 verse 1 to 2. When our Lord returns to raise the dead, not all dead, but those who are responsible to him by their knowledge of his requirements, the bodies of the faithful shall be changed to spirit. These are ever living bodies, as Paul explains when he writes, who shall change our vile body, literally, the body of our humiliation, for our bodies are not vile, God made them. 
that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things, taken from Psalm 8, verse 5, to himself. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Philippians 3, verse 21 to 4, verse 1. Digression Forgiveness and Prayer From the above we have seen that forgiveness is dependent upon the confession of sin. It is therefore critical to our confession that we know what sin is. Only by absorbing the divine standard, by reading God's word and thinking about its application, can we recognise sin. Of course, it's easier to recognise sin in others than in ourselves. And yet all sin cannot be observed. For example, despite setting himself as an example of exemplary godly living for believers to follow, the Apostle Paul still spoke about his inability to completely overcome sin. He referred to coveting which cannot be seen by others and does require searching of our own hearts to find it in ourselves. Romans 7 verse 7 to 25 John Carter drew out this idea when he wrote To set the Lord always before one's face to love enemies, to pray for those who act despitefully towards us, to think on the things that are just, lovely, and of good report, and on the, those alone, is a mode of life that will test the ability of the best to serve God. What a fullness of service is asked by Jesus when he says, We must love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. At the end of the day, has God ever been out of our sight? Has in ill-treatment or abuse or neglect provoked no bitter thoughts? Has no unfair, unlovely, unrighteous or unkind thought been entertained? Why, with the best of intentions, have other things found entrance into the mind? Is not Paul right when he speaks as he does in this analysis of human action? You say in despair that the situation then is hopeless. Not so. There is provision in him for forgiveness and help. We are exhorted to make a habit of drawing near to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy for past sins and grace to help in present needs. Thus writes John Carter in Paul's letter to the Romans, page 61. Having been forgiven, it is also necessary to repent, that is, to turn our lives around and try not to make the same mistakes again. But what of our forgiveness to those who have offended us? Must we forgive even if the offender does not repent? This would set for us an even higher standard than God's own. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Take heed to yourselves, 
If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Luke 17, verse 3. The idea of rebuke is obviously not to vent our feelings upon the other, but to help him to recognize his sin and come to repentance for his sake, not our own. What is forgiveness anyway? It is not necessarily reconciliation. That will depend upon the nature of the sin and possible ensuing trauma. Forgiveness means that we will not seek vengeance or recompense. We will not blacken the other's reputation, nor will we allow a root of bitterness to develop. None of this is easy. Success here will need the Father's help to achieve, and that can only be obtained by recognition of our own offences and prayer. As the Lord recommended us to pray and forgive us our debts, that is, all sin puts us in debt to God, as we forgive our debtors. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. These are the words of Christ in Matthew 6, verses 12 to 15. The Obedience of Faith to stand fast implies that it is more than just obedience that is required. It is the obedience and faith under trial that pleases God. We read this in Romans 1 verse 5 and Romans 16 verse 26. So often when in this situation people blame God for their troubles thinking that he is acting unfairly. This is far from the truth. James, the Lord's half-brother, says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. James 1 verse 13 God never tempts us to do evil. But it is a necessary qualification for the kingdom that our faith is tried so that it is shown to be genuine and is improved over time. We do not learn much from the good experiences of life. The lessons are gained from our bad experiences. In other words, like Adam and Eve driven from the garden, we learn to appreciate the love of our Heavenly Father and grow in love and compassion for others in need. We learn to see beyond ourselves. This is why expulsion from the garden was necessary. After all, the tree of life could have been cut down to prevent them from eating it. But then all the lessons for a godly life and growing in hope would have been lost. We don't enjoy trial, of course. Paul says, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, 
knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. This writes Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5.